Please pray with me. Gracious God, thank you for once again this wonderful day of worship and uh, all that we've done so far. Uh, I pray it's been pleasing to you, God, from first to last. And ask you, uh, just echoing our brother Bill's prayer, that uh, as we hear the sermon today from your word, that it would not just um, give us more head knowledge, God, but it would penetrate our hearts and move into our hands and our feet that we might apply and live uh, in the way that you want us to, that we would obey you out of, out of love, out of love for Christ Jesus who first loved us. So thank you so much, God, for this privilege and this, um, this time to proclaim your word and uh, for us to be encouraged and renewed by it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, in today's day and age, uh, there's definitely uh, an increasing amount of confusion about what marriage is and what the purpose of marriage is. What is it, really, if you're going to tell someone? And beyond that, what is the purpose of marriage? Anyway, confusion about this is widespread in our society, especially, it seems, amongst our really young ones. Uh, even younger than our beloved millennials. I'll call them our (laughs) pre-millennials. For example, some of you got that. But for example, at a children's Sunday school, uh, they were teaching all this wonderful truth uh, from the book of Genesis to the kids about how God created the world and everything in it, including human beings. And then there's little Johnny who was there, a boy in the kindergarten class. He seemed especially intent when they explained how Eve was created out of, the, out of one of Adam's ribs. And later in the week, his mom noticed him lying down as though he was ill. And she asked, Johnny, what's the matter? And Johnny said, I don't feel so good. I think I'm having a wife. <laughs> so others of our young ones, uh, they have no idea about the commitment of marriage. Uh, first grader Melanie, she announced that She was engaged to marry the young first grader next door, young boy next door. But the engagement was abruptly broken off. And then someone asked about it later. She said, well, he's just not ready for marriage yet. And besides that, he just scribbled in my notebook last week. (laughs) So on a more sobering, more serious note, um, there is actual real confusion about what marriage is these days. The distortions of this God-given institution have clouded the truth. Even within the church, for example, and this happened many, many years ago, decades ago even, uh, many people believe that divorce is acceptable. Okay? It just happens sometimes. Um, I fell out of love. right? Well, I'm not happy, and it's better for my happiness, and therefore better for my children's happiness, and et cetera, et cetera, right? Um, not to mention confusion due to the world's influence on issues like same-sex marriage and transgender couples, and this is extending into now throuples, right, three people being married or more, and then just the um, just age-inappropriate, right, just uh, trying to make legal marriage from adults to, to youngers, minors, 
Uh, all of this is, is happening just not on just the, the ground-based level. It's happening, like, on the policy level. And um, so it's coming, and it's all so uh, confusing. So um, let me just remind you of some st- statistics here. Uh, in 2004, the Pew Research polls showed that 60% of Americans were against legalizing same-sex marriage. Okay, 60% of Americans were against that, which means 40% were for it. That's back in 2004, roughly 20 years ago. Um, now, since 2021, support for gay marriage is at 70%. Okay, actually, this past year so far, it's at 71% support for gay marriage. Um, support even amongst older adults, people who are over 65 years old, has reached the 60% mark. So 60% of people over age 65 support same-sex marriage. Over 50% of Republicans now support same-sex marriage. Um, Even among people who attend church weekly, 41% in favor of same-sex marriage. And people who attend church weekly doesn't necessarily mean they're Christians, but it does mean they have some sort of religious practices. Um, the groups who are most in favor of same-sex marriage, adults aged 18 to 29, 89% of people who are 18 to 29 are for it. Democrats, 84%. Infrequent or non-churchgoers, 83%. Some of you know that uh, this was legalized by our Supreme Court uh, on June 26, 2015, and this opened it up not just for uh, homosexual couples, but for transgender people, um, transgender people. And so this causing all sorts of confusion, blurring the lines of what actual marriage is and what it means and what its purpose is. So what are some consequences of this? Well, it makes you stop and think, well, what is a family? What is a family? Um, what are parents? Okay, because people are saying, well, you can have two dads. It's just as good as having a mom and a dad or two moms, just the same thing. Well, is, is it really? Is it okay? Is it acceptable? Is it good? Is it healthy for a baby to grow up from birth with two dads, never knowing what a mom is or vice versa? And all the issues of, of surrogacy. Hey, what is surrogacy? Um, a, a Christian commentator named Ali Beth Stuckey, uh, she says this, basically, Surrogacy with a homosexual male couple involves them picking a woman out of a catalog, buying her eggs, fertilizing them, and then picking the embryo that they want, and then renting another woman's womb, and then taking the baby away from both the biological mom and the woman who carried them. Okay, So that's really what surrogacy is, if you've never just kind of thought through all that. And um, she goes on to say, it is unnatural, it is exploitative, it is unethical, and it's cruel to the child who was purposely created with the intention of just not being with the mother. And obviously, all these people are are receiving money and all these people are um, volunteering their services and everything. But the bottom line is, this is what's happening it's kind of like this huge social experiment, and nobody is thinking about the consequences. Okay, what is a family? What are parents? What is marriage? What does God say about all this? Listen, Proverbs 14:12 says, There is a way that seems right 
to a man, but its end is the way of death. With all these distortions and perversions of God's created order, seeming to be right in the eyes of man, and seemingly just, seemingly loving, and seemingly non-judgmental, according to the world, how much more do we need to know and believe and love God's truth? God is for us. He's not against us. Ultimately, all those confusion and lies are from the world. They're not loving, nor do they bring real hope to anyone. Actually, they lead to death and not to life. Jesus said in John chapter 8 that Satan is a liar and a murderer from the beginning. Hey, God is for us. Satan is against us. Okay? Jesus says he's a liar. He's a, the father of lies. He's a murderer. He hates us. On the other hand, Jesus also said in John chapter 8, if you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Jesus is for us. He's for our freedom. He's for us knowing God and knowing how to live our lives in the way that he is instructed. And so we are continuing in our sermon series. We're going through Genesis 1 through 11 since the end of May. I believe today is part 9, and um, I won't go through all the other parts with you, but basically we're on part 9. And uh, we're taking a little biblical marriage refresher for today, uh, selected scriptures. We don't have one particular text. Um, we're jumping off on the end of Genesis chapter 2 from two Sundays ago. So this is uh, entitled A Biblical Marriage Refresher. And our theme, I believe it's in your, um, your bulletin there, if you want to look in there, and it's going to be on the screen. Our sermon theme today is that God's blueprint for marriage is sacred, right, and beautiful. Why? Because he is the one who planned and purposed it from beginning to end. God is the one who made it up. He planned it. He purposed it from the very beginning all the way to the end. And hopefully we can just kind of encapsulate all of that, refresh ourselves in the truth of what all this is about. So we have an outline for you, three points. The first and last are going to be the shortest. The one in the middle will be the longest. And uh, that will lead us into our uh, communion time. And so let's jump into our first point, which is this. God's revelation of marriage as one man and one woman for life. Okay, God's revelation of revealing of what, uh, what marriage is as one man and one woman for life. And the question is, why, why do we believe this? Okay, why do we believe this? And I'm going to give you three quick R's here. And some of you might recall some of this from over a year ago when we were in Mark chapter 10 and we did a couple sermons on marriage. But let me just uh, reiterate um, quickly here. Three R's. Why do we believe that marriage is between one man and one woman for life? Well, number one, because it's rooted in Scripture. Okay, number two, because it's repeated by Jesus and reiterated throughout the Scriptures. And number three, it's because it reflects Christ's relationship with the church. Okay, so those are the three quick R's for you, and I'm going to explain them really quickly here. But from the very beginning of Scripture, Genesis chapter 2, which we saw last week, when God made Eve and he invented marriage, the first marriage, um, Genesis chapter 2, verse 24 says, For this reason a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. 
Okay, so this is from the very beginning, very beginning, second chapter of the Bible. In fact, you go back to the end of chapter one, the very first chapter of the Bible. Marriage is rooted in scripture as between one man and one woman. He made Eve from the rib of Adam, which little Johnny was confused about. Okay, this was Eve's very substance was made from the man instead of from the ground. Okay, this is very unique. First time uh, in, in the, the creation account. So they were literally, quite literally, one flesh. Okay? And every marriage after that was to reflect that oneness, that marital union that our first parents had, Adam and Eve being our first parents. So marriage then is the union of two members of the opposite sex who have made a covenantal commitment to God and to each other in holy matrimony. Okay? This is rooted in Scripture from the start. It's also reiterated by Jesus and repeated throughout the Bible. Mark chapter 10, Jesus says, verse 6, But from the beginning, God made them male and female. And then he quotes Genesis chapter 2. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Did you notice what Jesus is quoting there when he's teaching the people about marriage and about about um, just the, the sin of divorce, he refers back to the first two chapters of the Bible. He's affirming many things just by that, that one teaching. Okay, number one, he, he's affirming that creation is by God. It's not by evolution. It's in any way, shape, or form by means of evolution, things evolving okay, in a macro scale. No, creation is by God. He created everything. From the beginning of creation. And then also, he's affirming the creation and the historicity of Adam and Eve. Like these were actual real people who God made. The very first man, the very first woman that God made. Jesus wouldn't have mentioned Adam and Eve, the, the two, if, if he didn't think it was historical fact. Okay, so despite what the schools and the colleges and the, the educated and in, intellectual people say, um, evolution is not true and Adam and Eve are real. They're two physical people, the first people of this earth that God created. And lastly, the creation and definition of marriage, which is the point here. The creation and definition of marriage, Jesus is affirming that. He defines marriage by what Genesis said. The two shall become one flesh, and so they, the husband and the wife, are no longer two, but one. Okay? God made marriage from the very start of his creation, and it was very good, he says. Okay. The United States law or the Supreme Court or any court of any country does not define what marriage is. Only God can do that. Man can try to change the laws about what marriage is, but it doesn't change what it fundamentally is. Okay. It's just like a man trying to change himself into a woman. He will never, ever become a woman and vice versa. Okay, so this is repeated in the Bible, marriage being one man, one woman for life. It's repeated in throughout Scripture. In the Proverbs, I can give you a whole slew of them. Uh, the Song of Solomon, basically the whole book is a, a celebration of that first marriage of King Solomon and um, just uh, the wonders and, and joys of that. Um, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, 1 Corinthians 11, 8 through 12, Ephesians 5, Colossians 3, 1 Peter 3. First uh, Timothy three, Titus one, like all these things are teaching and and repeating that marriage is what God says. Let me give you another definition of marriage. An intimate and complementing union 
between a man and a woman in which two become one physically and in the whole of life. W-H-O-L-E. In the, the completeness, the wholeness of life. And so we went over that a couple Sundays ago, so I'm not going to expand on it. But um, listen, marriage is not a product of social mores uh, or social evolution or changing cultural practices. Marriage came down from God. He defined it for us and he gave it to us as a beautiful gift and blessing. Okay. so lastly, uh, marriage reflects or we believe in what marriage is because it reflects Christ's relationship to the church. And that was the purpose for our scripture reading in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 to 33. I know that we are familiar with that passage, but um, some are less familiar. And it just describes uh, the institution of marriage being glorious because part of its purpose is to display the relationship of Christ with the church. And it helps us to see and understand the gospel itself. So it's a portrait and a picture of this wonderful relationship of Christ, who is called the bridegroom or the groom, and the church, who is called the bride in Scripture. So Ephesians 5 just kind of lays it out for us, right? Um, As the husband loves his wife, as Christ loves his church, this is sacrificially and unconditionally. And as the wife joyfully submits to her husband, like the church submits to Christ as her head, Godly marriages point the world to see the beauty and glory of the gospel. Okay, I'm going to say more about that as we get to some of our other points um, towards the end. But let's move on now to our, our having those just fundamental foundational things in place. Why do we believe what what is marriage and where do we get the definition? Okay, it's rooted in scripture, it's reiterated by Jesus and throughout the Bible, and it's a reflection of Christ and his church. But uh, the next thing, God's purpose and meaning for marriage. Some of these things are going to overlap a little bit. But God's purpose and meaning for marriage, marriage, this covenant of companionship in Christ. Okay, I got a few C's for you. I gave you three R's. I got four C's for you on this point. Okay, like to help us just uh, summarize in our in our minds and our hearts what is the purpose and meaning of marriage. And so, the first thing is companionship. Companionship. You remember from Genesis 2 in that rewind of uh, chapter 1 of creation. Genesis 2, uh, as the, the, the account zooms back to day 6 of the creation of man and woman. Genesis 2, verse 18. Then the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be what? Alone. Okay, I will make him a helper suitable for him. And so uh, there was something not good amongst day one, day two, day three, day four, day five. Everything was all good. God said it. He saw it. It was good. That benediction was missing, though, all of a sudden in verse 18 of chapter two. It was incomplete, not whole yet. He said it's not good for the man to be alone. Something lacking. Okay, God states that the man should have a companion, a helper. It's not good for man to be by himself. And we know that God takes care of it, right? He puts Adam under a deep, deep sleep, forms Eve from the rib of Adam, brings her to him. Adam wakes up, rubs his eyes, sees her. He says, whoa, man, right? <laughs> some, of us, <laughs> some of us said that when we first laid eyes on our dear wifeys, but, um, and still say that um, when we see them. 
and in our hearts. But Genesis 2.24 then says, For this reason a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So God instituted it from the very beginning. One man, one woman to become one under him. It was God's answer and provision to human loneliness. So becoming one flesh, right? Um, Two Sundays ago, we went over leaving, cleaving, and weaving. Weaving being the one flesh part. And I said that this speaks primarily of physical intimacy. Although we went over, it means sharing in lots of other things as well, right? Being one flesh, sharing in the whole of life. But um, it means uh, the, the consummation of that marriage relationship. So sexual intimacy, once again, between a husband and a wife in marriage is natural. It's beautiful. It's blessed by God. It's not shameful in any way. Remember verse 25, Genesis 2, right? And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Okay? So the undefiled marriage bed is a wonderful, wonderful thing. Um, And yet, that means all other sexual relations outside of marriage is sinful. Whether that's premarital sex or that's adultery, cheating on your husband or wife, or including homosexuality, bisexuality, and all those things. There's so much confusion out there about what is acceptable, what is normal. All of this is sinful before God. In fact, um, God calls homosexual relations an abomination and detestable to him. Okay? Uh, Leviticus 18.22, Leviticus 20.13. Uh, he calls it degrading passions in Romans chapter 1. Okay? Romans 1.26 says, For their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. Okay? Literally, that means against nature. And in the same way also, the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another, men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. So the marriage relationship was and is defined by God. Its meaning and its purposes don't ever change. Two people of the same sex cannot become one flesh. Trying to do so is unnatural and indecent according to God's loving truth. Again, I remind you all, God is for us. He's not against us. He tells us these things because this is what is good for our souls and our bodies and our eternity. So once again, governments can change laws. They can make it legal. Same-sex marriage, right? They can even try to force other countries to change their laws like the United States is trying to do to Africa who don't want to change their their marriage laws. They, they, they're against same-sex marriage. And yet there are powers that be that want to try to influence them to change things like that. But the truth remains, homosexuality, LGBTQ, it's an abominable, shameful desire and deed that leads to nothing but death and destruction. And that is God's loving truth to us. God is not the creator of such things. He is the giver and source of life. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, James 
So we, listen, we should not, according to Romans 2, we should not think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience. We should know that as we proclaim the hope of Jesus Christ to the lost, that it's only the kindness and mercies of God that will lead sinners to repentance. I mean, that's where our, our hope is, right? Christ, our sure and steady anchor, Christ and him crucified. This is our message. Good news of hope and peace and joy for every sinner, every sinner. God loves sinners. We love sinners because God first loved us while we were in our sin. So from the beginning, all the way back to Genesis, God made the woman to be the complementary help for the man. We were made for companionship. This is part of the blessing and provision of God who gave humankind everything needed, physical and spiritual, everything that we need in order to serve and worship and obey him for his glory. And like I said, God made all this. He saw it, made the man, made the woman, instituted marriage. He saw all of it and behold, it was very, very good. Second point, second C for you, co-laborers, co-laborers. Um, this is part of the purpose and meaning for marriage as God intended for the husband and wife to be co-laborers, co-workers together. Once again, all the way back to Genesis 1, God commanded both Adam and Eve to fill the earth and subdue it and rule over it, right? Um, Genesis 1, verse 28. Importantly, that cultural mandate, okay, that cultural decree, what God instructed, commanded, was given to the man and the woman together, not apart from one another. And he said it to them, and he actually spoke it to them. And he blesses them. He blessed that couple, Adam and Eve, that first couple. And then he puts them in charge of subduing the earth as co-laborers to bring glory to himself. The husband and wife are to be co-workers, working together within that complementary role that God designed for each of them. So, once again, husbands, just as, as Vodi Balcom so helpfully puts it, we're to be the, the prophets, the priests, the providers, the protectors of our homes, of our families. Okay, that's, that's our job. That's not our wife's job to be prophet, priest, provider, protector, even though the world has turned all that upside down. Right? The wives are called to be honorers, helpers, homemakers, a priority home family, um, honoring, submitting to the husband. This is God's design. Ephesians 5, Colossians 3, Titus 2, 1 Peter 3, on and on it goes, right? From the beginning, Genesis 1 through 2, profound, profound problems and issues arise in the family and in the church and in society when these fundamental roles and building blocks of society are no longer followed. Okay, men start acting like boys or women. Women start acting like men. We turn away from God's clear and simple word and we go our own way. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. And, uh, as the ladies were, our, our, my wife and Phoebe were at the ladies' retreat uh, yesterday, had some time with uh, my, my boys, and uh, just continuing to shepherd them and what's going on in our society uh, as we see it. And someone helpfully said that hard times create strong men, Strong men create good times. 
Good times create weak men, and weak men create hard times. And uh, we kind of find ourselves in that cycle right now. Um, hopefully these hard times, these weird times, these evil, wicked, upside-down times will create strong men. And um, I don't know who said that, but it kind of made sense just, just looking at the society today and our country. But when I say strong men, and I'm teaching my boys about what a strong man is, I'm talking about men of character and men of Christ-like character, men who love and serve King Jesus, men who live for a, a greater purpose than simply for their own desires, because that's what all the men who are more like grown up, growing up boys uh, in today's society are doing, living for their own desires. So a man of character knows that their purpose is to live for God, to live for Jesus, and not just for themselves. And so, in God's beautiful and wise design, with the husband as the spiritual leader and the wife as the spiritual helpmate, marriage will strengthen and flourish as God intended. And also, the individuals will flourish as God intended. The husband and the wife, the man and the woman, and then the family, the church, the society, and on it goes. The question that we need to continually ask ourselves is do we, do you trust God in that? Do you trust God, God's word, God's promises, that his way is the best? His way is better than your way and my way. His way will lead to your soul's satisfaction and joy and flourishing. Do we believe it, really, enough to apply it? So God made marriage so husband and wife can be co-workers, co-laborers to advance his kingdom purposes. It's in the home as we raise our children and families. It's in the church as we seek to grow together in Christ and be built up and build others up. And in the community as we are reaching the lost in our neighborhoods with the gospel. So third C, after companionship and co-laborers is children. Children, Genesis 1:28 again, God blessed them. This is Adam and Eve, first man and woman. And God said to them, and he says to all of us, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Hey, be fruitful and multiply. This was a blessing. Another purpose for marriage is, is for people to have children and to raise them up in his ways. God commanded them to be fruitful and multiply, as I just said. This is... Um, Contrary to the thinking of today's world about the value of children, they are devalued. Um, They are sometimes seen as an obstacle to career pursuits or, again, my own dreams, my own ambitions, my own desires. A lot of times it's my own selfish life and wasting a whole lot of time. Okay, Um, The Bible clearly considers children to be blessings, right? Psalm 127, they are a gift of the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. How blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. Psalm 127. The Bible tells us that God would not only have married couples value and have children, but also that they would be raised up to know and fear him. Right? That's what God wants. Parents are instructed, commanded by God to bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Ephesians 6.4. Okay, we as parents have the, the blessed privilege 
It's definitely a, a heavy weight also, but it's an incredible privilege to disciple our children into Christ through the teaching of, of his word uh, in which the gospel is, is contained. And that's what we do. That's what we want to do. One godly Christian mom expressed her goal as a parent this way. She says, I want to sow gospel seeds deep in my children's hearts, seeds that will take root and grow up into righteousness and produce massive fruit for the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, I just think that's an amazing way to just just summarize it. What is our goal in parenting? I asked you, Christian parent, what is your desire as a parent, as a father, as a mother for your children? How are you sowing gospel seeds deep into your children's hearts? And this is, a, this is not a parenting sermon, but I'll simply say, say this. Uh, please be reading your Bible and praying. Please be cultivating your own relationship with God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Please be, as, as faithfully as you can, walking the walk. And then share that wisdom and the truth that you're learning uh, from your time with the Lord with with your children. And if you're our grandparents, as you have opportunity, do the same as best as you can. So that leads us to our last point, the second point, which is exalt Christ and the cross. Okay? The, the C's there are Christ and the cross. So um, this is going to overlap with our third and last point. So some of this is going to all come together. But once again, um, the purpose of marriage, which I already mentioned before at the end of the first point, was to exalt, to reflect Jesus' relationship with the church. Ephesians chapter 5, it's all right there. And we know that the Bible describes the believer's relationship with Christ in a number of ways. There's many different pictures that God gives us, right? There's uh, Christ as the head and the church is the what? The body. Right? Jesus says to his disciples in John 15, I am the vine and you are the what? The branches. Right? Um, throughout the Gospels, Jesus is described as being a king, the king, the king of kings. And we, as believers, are kingdom citizens. Right? Uh, Jesus is the good shepherd. We are his sheep. And so all descriptions that help us to see various aspects of the church's relationship with the Lord. And one of the most beautiful and descriptive metaphors is this one that's already been mentioned. Christ as the groom, bridegroom, and the church as his bride. And Ephesians 5, which Pastor Bill read earlier, tells us that marriage is a profound mystery which reflects the relationship of Jesus and the church. And that's an amazing thought to ponder, right? Along with companionship, being co-laborers, being, bearing and raising children, God created the institution of marriage to display the union of Christ and the church. And the only way that there could be this love relationship is by and through the gospel, the good news. God gave his son to the world so that he would render himself as a guilt offering. He would bear the iniquities of his people He would be numbered with us, the transgressors, and he would justify all who would believe in him. The Son of God willingly sacrificed himself. He was 
pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging, we are healed. We are saved from our sins if we believe. It took that death, that crucifixion, that resurrection of the groom for this marriage to come to pass. The church is the redeemed believers of the New Testament age. We're living in the church age right now. So the church is the bride being prepared for the Son of God, and this will be an eternal union forever. God made it so that the most intimate of human relationships, right, which is what marriage is, there's no other relationship like it. And it pictures the intimacy of Jesus' relationship with his church. So we kind of went over Ephesians 5 already, and I'll just call the husbands back to that passage. Right? How are, how's it going with your sacrificial, unconditional love for your wife? Wives, I'll ask you, how is it with your honoring and submitting to your husband, being a trusted helpmate um, who's prioritizing the home and the family and, and uh, that relationship? Um, how's it going with, with you uh, in this stage of your marriage? The Bible tells us that our marriages exist to exalt Christ and the cross. That's incredible. Okay? It's, it's supposed to display the actual gospel. And that is definitely convicting uh, as I think about my own marriage and think about the growth that I need to continue to strive for. Um, and at the same time, it's encouraging because it's, it's a beautiful thing. Okay? The beauty of this marriage covenant that Christian husbands and wives are committed to is that their relationship is firmly rooted in their love for Jesus Christ. And when Jesus is at the center, just everything else falls into beautiful place. As we're devoted to Christ as our Savior and our Lord, we are spiritually one in him. Spiritually one in him. That's what happens. All of our hopes and dreams, individually and together, have Christ at the center, and that's a beautiful thing. So as we get into our last point here, which um, some of that overlaps already, like I said, uh, there was an apt summary of marriage given once. And I want you to think about this. Uh, I just asked about your own marriages, but however many years that you've been married at this point in your lives, hey, for me and my wife, uh, this very week, it's going to be 23 years that we'll celebrate. Um, the Nesbits, the week after that, will be number 36. And so... Um, Wherever you are, however many years, um, listen to this, and it's very brief. Summary of marriage. The roots are deep. The covenant is solid. Love is sweet. Life is hard. And God is good. So whether you've been married a short amount of time or a long amount of time, does that resonate with you? Yeah, that's what marriage is. It is It is. Uh, very, very profound, very deep. Uh, it is solid, this commitment, this covenant we made. Uh, love, love is sweet between a husband and a wife. But life is hard, isn't it? Life is hard, lots of trouble, sin is hard. But God is good. He's faithful and true, beginning to end. So, last point here. God's picture and metaphor of marriage. This will make our way into communion. And as we consider, um, once again, just that picture of 
Ephesians 5 and just uh, throughout scripture of Christ being the groom and the church being the bride, just kind of in a metaphoric way. Revelation chapter 19. Revelation 19 verses 7 through 9. I'll just read it for you. You can turn there with me if you want. But uh, this is kind of subtitled in, in my Bible, Marriage of the Lamb. That's why I'm bringing it to our attention here. Revelation 19, starting in verse 7, says, Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to him. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. The Lamb being Jesus, and his bride being the church, right? And so this is in the future. This is before Jesus returns to earth, okay? Um, Not too long before that time. Verse 8 says, It was given to her, the bride, the church, to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Then verse 9, then he, this is the angel speaking to the Apostle John, he said to me, write, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are true words of God. All right, so as quickly as I can here, um, some of us are aware that Jewish marriages and weddings had three main parts. Right. The betrothal and then the preparation and then the actual ceremony and consummation. Right. Just biblical times and ancient times. This is the way it was. So that betrothal period could have been a really, really long time. Arranged marriages and just way before they were actually married. But there was this engagement time. We read about that with Joseph and Mary. And then um, just the presentation time is when the families get together and the, the bride is presented to the, the, the husband. And that takes a certain amount of time as well. And just um, the, the last part is the actual ceremony and the consummation of the marriage. And so um, it's a wonderful event. It's a special celebration. Uh, it was longer than just kind of, you know, today we have one day and it's a very special day and it's wonderful and it's great the way we do it. But um, back then there was a little more just uh, ceremony, a little more process, a little more time um, through, for it all. And so that's the picture. And so Revelation 19 is this, um, you know, after the betrothal part, which some have said uh, um, between Christ and the church was like this contract, so to speak, signed in eternity past, okay, before the foundation of the world, Ephesians chapter 1, uh, when, when the chosen were chosen between the Trinity and the Father chose it and Jesus saved it and the Holy Spirit sealed it. Um, this is all part of the betrothal, if you will. And then the presentation uh, some have said that this takes place at the rapture when the church is taken, which could happen, by the way, at any moment, which um, we would be glad for, uh, those of us who are believers. And we're taken up, John chapter 14, Jesus says, I will take you to where I am. And he's bringing them to the Father, the church. This is also described in Ephesians chapter 5 as part of the presentation is the washing of the bride, the sanctifying of believers in the church, being presented before God and before Christ himself. And so um, this is I'm not going to get into all the details, but uh, there is a process here. But in any case, this presentation of the bride is like this really joyous, wonderful fellowship and celebration. It will lead to the time for the wedding ceremony, which is the marriage of the lamb. Revelation chapter 19. Okay, this marriage is marked by even more celebration and a great supper. The marriage supper, it's called. And that's why I brought Revelation 19 to our attention. Okay, 
The church has been betrothed. It's been presented. And now the wedding ceremony begins. It's before Jesus comes back to earth, before his millennial kingdom, 1,000 year reign on earth. Apparently, this is going to be a really long celebration, which will finally be consummated in the new heavens and new earth. A couple chapters later in Revelation chapter 21. So, um, so that's the picture, folks, of what's ahead in the future. And um, in the new heavens and new earth, this is what we get to look forward to. Um, we should remember, again, that this wedding imagery is imagery. It's metaphoric. Um, it's hard to take that all the way to just the, the final physical you know, place. Um, but it pictures God's intimate union and relationship with his people. Okay, so this is how we're going to bring it to the Lord's table here, because um, as we consider what marriage is and the purpose and the meaning of marriage, and we've heard all this now and just understanding, I hope now that God's blueprint, God's plan for marriage is sacred. It's holy and it's right because it's from God. It's righteous. And I I hope we see the beauty in it also through some of the things that were mentioned. Um, But it is all that because God is the one who planned it. He's the one who purposed it all the way from the beginning. And now as we see Revelation chapter 19, it's going to be consummated at the end. And not just between individual husbands and wives, but between Christ, the bridegroom and his bride, the church. And so as a picture of union and unity and connection and commitment and covenant, um, it's a cause for incredible celebration and rejoicing and ceremony. And this is, I think, part of the purpose of this marriage supper that's going to happen at the end of times. Okay, human marriage points man and even angels to the beauty of our Lord Jesus Christ and his gospel. Okay, and so I often remind you when it's time for communion, what should we be thinking about? What should be going on in our minds and our hearts? Well, we should be looking back at Christ. He says, remember me, right? The cross, remember Jesus' love for you, God's love for you, what he did so that you could be forgiven of your sins. Look up, look up to him and, and glorify him. Okay, remember God who is and Jesus who is seated at the right hand of God. Remember who the person of God is, Father, Son, and Spirit. Okay, look inward. Look inward at yourselves. Second uh, Corinthians, First Corinthians 11. Okay, it says to to examine ourselves before we take communion. Right, make sure we are coming in a manner worthy of Christ. And then it says, look. Look ahead, right? Look, we proclaim him until he comes back. So we're to look ahead in the future, and that's another part of the reason I brought Revelation 19 to our attention. But Jesus says in Luke chapter 22, this is the final thing. He says, I say to you, to his disciples at the Last Supper, okay? He says, I shall never again eat it, the bread and the cup, until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he's talking about that time when he takes it again in the millennial kingdom, his kingdom, when he comes back to earth. And he says in verse 18, For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until the kingdom of God comes. Dear folks, we get to celebrate, we get to remember together 
as we look back, look up, look inward, and look ahead at the wonders of the glory of Jesus Christ. We get to do that together. And the purpose is for us, in obedience to, to Jesus, to, to come closer to him, okay, to, to become more intimate in our fellowship with him and with one another. Communion. Communion. It is, it is strengthening the bonds of our unity in Christ as the body.